This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Good afternoon, Cherries fans, and welcome to this latest show here on Up the Cherries in All Departments. Now, do keep in mind, our sponsors are Dental on the Banks. You can find them on Haven Road in Camford Cliffs and on their website, dentalonthebanks.co.uk. So please do check them out. Now, this show is all about our season in the Premier League. So what better time to review the last 12 months now that it's all over and safety is assured 1st of June um, we can all look forward to the summer and of course Premier League football next season what we'll do in this show is we'll discuss everything from that Nottingham Forest game just over 12 months ago where we won promotion to the Premier League all the way up to the current day and the future of this football club what better person though to actually discuss this with than somebody who's been reporting for the Bournemouth Daily Echo on every single game this season every single story it is a pleasure to welcome onto the show from the Daily Echo Jack Tanner good afternoon Jack how you doing mate not bad very happy to be here Excellent stuff. And thank you so much for coming on this show. So what we're going to do is a little bit of a season review and look at the last 12 months for the Cherries because it's been an eventful 12 months. But I tell you what, let's go back to the very beginning. That game against Nottingham Forest, I think it was the third, wasn't it, of May. And of course, a lot rided on it. If we had lost that game, Forest would have gone above us and would have been in the driving seat no doubt they would have got the automatic promotion spot and would we have found our way through the playoffs. But Scott Parker navigated that quite well. But one thing that does make me question, you know, that going into that game is should we have been in that situation in the first place? Because we got 37 points from the first 15 games and then it kind of just tailed off. There was the defeat against Derby, the poor performance at home to Reading. We didn't beat Peterborough um, at all that season. And there was numerous other times as well where you thought, OK, really, we should be picking up maximum points here. 
Yeah, um, it's interesting because I think like Scott Parker's time as a whole now, when you look back on it, because of how it ended, you, you kind of forget really what happened before. Like, Boreham Wood, that FA Cup defeat, feels like yep. almost like it didn't happen, if not a lifetime ago. Uh, it feels so detached from this season in particular, even though it was, what, 18 months ago? Yeah. Um, it has kind of been forgotten how they really just stuttered over the line. Um, I think people knew that at the time hasn't been forgotten for for a bad reason. It's very much just been brushed to one side because I don't think many people want to recall just how they got there in the end. It, it was kind of stuttering. And as you say, it, it was quite interesting how at the start of the season when resources are a bit tighter, mm-hmm. results were arguably better than when they did manage to get reinforcements in the door in January. Of course, injury did limit Keith Moore, for example. Um, that yeah. story of how he pretty much came back and played what, I think less than 100 minutes of football in the end and scored quite a few goals. Um, but yeah, you, you do kind of have to question, especially when you consider where Forrest came from as well, Cooper coming in, where they were at the same time, Cherries atop the league. The fact that a team, of course, a lot of credit to Forrest to, to rocket up that league table, but mm-hmm. with the sort of resources, and of course, second, second team, second year in the championship following relegation, you still have most of your key players from the Premier League still. Um, so really teams like Fulham, like Bournemouth, like Sheffield United this year, even though not necessarily in that first season of relegation, I know Fulham were, but they really should be winning most games in the championship. That pretty much happens. So yeah, it wasn't the, the best of promotion seasons, I think, just in terms of form, but they did get the job done. Uh, and that Forest game, again, feels like a lifetime ago. Mm-hmm. With regards to going into this season, um, after our promotion, and we was written off by pretty much everybody. The bookies didn't just have us as the relegation zone, they had us as bottom. And you saw numerous, of course, AFC Bournemouth released that video as well of people saying, yep, yeah, Bournemouth to go down, Bournemouth to go down. Everybody was saying it. They could have picked loads and loads and loads more. But everybody wrote us off. And, you know, considering the strength of the squad that we had going up from the championship, but maybe that squad had kind of underachieved towards the end. Because I don't know about you, Jack, but the squad at the start of the championship season... Because we had so many injuries, we was playing Zeno Ibsen Rossi, Gavin Kilkenny, um, of course Zamora and Anthony were both, you know, youngsters and hadn't had much football at all under their belts. It felt like that was a weaker squad than what we finished with, but we stuttered over the line. But it seemed like the strength come back towards the end, but the results went down a little bit. Um do you feel that it was quite unfair to predict us as finishing in that bottom three? Well, especially bottom of the league. I mean, I think automatically all, all promoted sides get lumped into the relegation battle, no matter what. Even like, yeah. for example, this year, Fulham, well clear of it. Leeds, a few seasons back, well clear of it. Brentford as well. Um, just for examples. But you also got to consider the reinforcements in January were largely loan players. And then mm. you're also losing quite a bit of experience with Gary Cahill going. I know Robbie Brady didn't play much, but it looked like a whilst there was quality there, there perhaps wasn't Premier League experience. It wasn't, I think, only three, four, five players 
had over 100 games in the Premier League. Yeah. So even if they were good players, they haven't yet had the opportunity to kind of prove themselves in the top flight. But I think it's a case of, I think even now, if you look at it, I wouldn't necessarily say Bournemouth have like for the 15th best squad in the, in the division. That's not a slight on the Bournemouth players. It just proves how much money is in the is in the Premier League and how many good players teams have. And sometimes, on paper, those those players are really good players. You look at like Nottingham Forest, for example, um, signing on loan an Atletico Madrid fullback who, before the loan move, was playing regularly. You've got a Champions League finalist, goalkeeper, Keylor Navas on loan from PSG. Just the sheer amount of quality you just peel back. I mean, the amount of players that you don't even realise are still at a team because they're not even playing and not even being utilised properly. So I don't think it was too harsh to say when, when they came up. But but also I think with that sort of recency bias of realising how Cherry's kind of struggled to get up there, you wouldn't be too wouldn't be too harsh to say that they were going to struggle, especially A, because they lost a load of loan players. I know maybe Nat Phillips had the biggest impact from the January signings on loan, like Todd Cantwell kind of faded away. Um, like Gary Cahill again, he left and stopped playing as well. But still, that experience in the dressing room can be key. Um, but the, the summer business again, they didn't bring in Premier League experienced players. You brought in Neto, obviously, who yeah. has experience with the Champions League. Um, obviously, that's proved to be a great signing, but he wasn't even playing at the start of the season, was he? Um, no. which again, seems crazy. Um, but yeah, the transfer business, the players that were there. Uh, and the form they were in to seal promotion, you can kind of see why that added up to, to people thinking that they were going to struggle. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, we got off the mark early on with that win against Aston Villa at home. But we then had three games against the big teams. So we're talking Man City, Arsenal, and then Liverpool in a row. We'll come to that Liverpool game. But um with regards to the Man City and Arsenal performances, I thought we played all right at City. Yeah, I think obviously no game of football is a complete write-off, but especially Cherry's record at City and against City in the Premier, yeah. especially uh, it doesn't make pretty reading. Uh, and it, that's a difficult run, isn't it? On paper, yeah. to play what proved to be the top two teams in the division and Liverpool, even though. Of course, they've had a, an off-season by their standards. They do have the opportunity when it clicks because it's not just the 9-0. Score seven goals against Manchester United. That, to me, is even more insane. And I, I was there at Anfield for the 9-0. And that felt crazy at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, they're obviously still a good team that, that can really hurt teams. Um, but as a run, I must admit, I wasn't necessarily thinking that Parker's job was under threat heading into that Liverpool fixture. Even even if you told me beforehand, Cherry's going to lose 9-0 today, I, I necessarily wouldn't have thought Parker was going. It obviously happened for his comments. But I think they got what you kind of expected from the City and Arsenal games, especially the way they were set up. It very much was risk-adverse. They weren't trying to go for anything special. It kind of did feel like damage limitation. And then you would kind of say, well, did they really limit much damage? I don't particularly remember. Arsenal looked good in the home game, but I wouldn't necessarily say they they had so many chances that they would have scored more if Cherries hadn't put the handbrake on. So it's one of those where I think any newly promoted side sees those three fixtures and they probably go, well, zero points. But performances are okay, but about what you expected. And I think 
personally, in those situations, when you kind of know you've got nothing to lose, especially like second game of the season, you're in the city, you may as well go for it because you go yeah. to Anfield two games later, you don't go for it and you still lose 9-0. Like, what's the point? Um, but yeah, I think it, it was a weird time because everyone kind of expected it. And also, I think it was also offset by the Aston Villa win. Not many people were expecting quite a comfortable win against uh, an established Premier League team on the opening day. Uh, and that kind of put a little bit of credit in the bank. And that credit in the bank quickly disappeared. Scott Parker did say before the season even kicked off that he needed reinforcements. And Maxim Demon has been always so supportive to this football club. But let's be honest, he never had an endless pot of gold. As we soon found out, of course, um, because he needed to sell or he wanted to sell the football club. Um, You know, he loved his time here. But at the same time, I guess the money that he could invest would only go so far. Um, But of course, Scott Parker, after that 9-0 thrashing at Liverpool, which unfortunately I was there as well, Jack, um, come out with those statements. Um, Do you feel, firstly, at the start of the season, do you feel that he was justified to say what he did say? Um, And then after that Liverpool game, you know, was he just basically shooting himself in the foot? There's definitely a time and a place for saying it and, and a way of saying it because I think fast forward to January, you had Gary Neal kind of striking the same sort of chords um, yeah. in terms of what he was saying, but he was just much more polite and more balanced about saying it. Yeah. Um, the oddest thing to me is Scott Parker was a long-term target of the club um, for some time. Obviously, he stepped down from Fulham where it looked like Fulham would have continued with him for another season in the Championship after the relegation. And he went from Fulham and when he left Fulham, he made similar comments of how the club had to kind of establish themselves and take further steps rather than becoming that Yo-Yo club. So, it, to me, it just seems baffling that he would, A, step down to Bournemouth in, for, in the season of the Championship as he probably would have been with Fulham. But I, I just don't believe that when he was hired, he, he wouldn't be informed of the landscape of what perhaps promotion will entail. It, it almost implies that they're expecting for another year in the in the champ, but the business they did in January and just like the, the general finances of relegation, the third season, it becomes a lot more difficult to go back up because that's when you start after losing even more and more players. Even at the start of the second, um, there was rumours of more players going. I think Arnat Danjuma leaving kind of gave them enough wiggle room. Um but yeah, it's just so baffling, not just the content of his comments, but when he was choosing to say them, and especially because that Nottingham Forest game, the um, half-time like, chat they, they showed, the dressing room talk, showed that he was, he was relatively well-liked by the players. He very much yeah. got on with them. Um, I remember after that Forest game, interviewing Lloyd Kelly on the pitch, and he, he came up and gave Lloyd Kelly a massive, like during an interview, gave him a massive hug. Um, so he clearly cared for the players, I guess part of it is he, he sees himself as a winner and he has that kind of ruthless attitude, but to be such a huge disconnect with the hierarchy of the club, to not know what the summer plans were and to be frustrated by them, that felt really odd. So to see him go a few days later, just based on that disconnect, added up because, as you say, I think even at that time, the club had been quietly put back on the market. It had never really been taken off the market, but you're back in the Premier League, interest grows again. 
sorry, there was definitely things moving in the background towards a takeover. There was no way Scott Parker was not informed about that. Um, and he probably was informed to the point that he realised in that summer window he wasn't going to get the players he wanted or the level of investment that he felt required. Um, however, I still think, you look at the summer business, I, I still think the summer business is better than the January business. Of course, we've had a longer sample size to kind of look yeah. at the impact those players have had. But even Joe Rothwell, who of course was injured, but didn't get a look in under Parker. Nato, again, you bring in a goalkeeper who's good enough for Barcelona, but you keep him on the bench. Um, it, and even I didn't see the best of Tavs, of course, it was only four games. Um, but the impact he's had, there was good enough players there, and there's already good enough players at the club that's kind of proved. So it's just it was just baffling. It still is baffling to me. It is one of those where I don't think we're ever going to really find out what those internal conversations are that, that led Parker to almost go nuclear. Um, but yeah, <laughs> like I said, I'm still confused. <laughs> With regards to those signings during the summer, um, were they signings? Do you feel that Scott had a say in, or do you think that they mostly come from Richard Hughes? I think I think the head coach at Cherry has always had some sort of say, um, mm-hmm. just because Bournemouth have not got the, the money to go and sign a player, even on a free transfer, and have him taking up a, a registration spot and not playing. Um, yeah, that. But like Ryan Frederick, for example, someone who worked with Scott Parker at Fulham and West Ham, was a good signing. I know his injury record was a concern and that's ultimately proved to be the case again. But still, that was Premier League experience that Cherries were, were lacking. Um, perhaps not in a position they needed to strengthen when you got Jack Stacey, who's played a bit in the Prem, Aaron Smith, the most experienced um, player they had uh, aside from June. But he, Scott Parker would have had a say. And of course, Tavs, I think, was brought in to, to play a specific role. And it, it did very much seem that Parker was trying to change the way Cherries are playing. Obviously, it was such a small sample size to kind of base that on. Um, but I remember the, the Bristol City and Real Sociedad uh, friendlies, and there was a kind of a discontent at the way they were playing. But that worked against Aston Villa, the almost five-man yeah. defence, uh, and how they were going to defend the low block and try and force teams into crossing the ball into the box. But that doesn't work against Man City. It doesn't work against Arsenal. It doesn't work against Liverpool. Uh, so it would, would have been interesting to see if he stayed on. A, how Joe Rothwell would come into the team under him. A, how Tavs would play that sort of left wing back role. But also if the confidence, I imagine, would have been really knocked. If you, you try and switch to a new formation that's more defensively minded and you concede, what was it, 16 goals in three games? I imagine yeah. the players' confidence would be on the floor. Um so that's another what if that would have been interesting and perhaps painful to watch. But yeah, I, I think that the summer business as a whole, like I said, has been more positive than it has been negative. Ryan Fredericks, again, I think even fast forward to this summer, if you get offered a, um, a Premier League experience right back yeah. on a free transfer, you probably take that again. Um, yes, okay, the injury record has proven to be an issue once more. But the patient showing with Joe Offwell was, of course, he was he's a January target. And Cherries went in with a few bids to kind of prize him away from, from Blackburn. Um, yeah. But to then get him on a free transfer. And again, that was a risk because he, he's never played in the Prem. Obviously, he's got decent pedigree, but he was stepping up a level um, at a new club far away from, mm-hmm. from home, being a Lancashire lad. Um, 
that's proven to be a fantastic bit of business. I think almost rivaling Neto um, and to get to prize Neto away on a free transfer. That was also a risk because, again, he was rusty. He looked very rusty when he first came in. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of a case of, and I, I think like the, the hamstring injuries and the knocks he had, that was also because of the rustiness. He wasn't used to his body, wasn't used to the intensity of the Premier League, but also playing week in, week out um, for some time. But again, that, that's a masterstroke. But as a whole, the summer business, it, like I say, it would be interesting to see what the plan was and how those signings fit into Scott Parker's tactics because, again, we'll never know. But I, I can see why Parker would want some of those players. and I, I very much imagine they were his signings in the sense of he would have okayed them. Um, perhaps Neto, for example, I'm not sure how he would have dealt with the, the handover in a way. Um, it would have been interesting to see what he would have done for the Wolves game if he would have swapped Travs out. Because, of course, that's a massive talking point. Um, last season's Player of the Year, um, or Daily Echo Player of the Year, multiple people had different people. Um, being dropped, I like the, the 9 0. I wouldn't say particularly any goals were Travs' fault. There was a few just general things, perhaps, but it, obviously, your confidence is going to take a knock. But I think as a young yeah. goalkeeper, your confidence takes a big knock if you get pulled out of the team. Um, but perhaps that was the blow was softened because you've been replaced by a goalkeeper from Barcelona. But again, it would have been very interesting to see how Parker would handle that. Um, of course, what what we'll do is we'll we'll discuss this a little bit later on, but we've seen that Travers is a quality goalkeeper like in the recent Everton game. But going back to that point in time, so we've just been beaten by Liverpool. Scott Parker's been sacked three days later. And Gary O'Neill's been appointed. The big thing that, and you know, something that he deserves so much credit for is those players were on the floor, their heads were down. We had a lot of youngsters in that squad, and how Gary O'Neill actually picked them up. Firstly, did you did you think that it was a temporary appointment at that point um, and that something was going on in the background at the club or was was it a case that they were just going to see how Gary was going to do? Because it didn't seem like they had a plan for when Scott left, unlike, say, for example, Brighton. Yeah, I think it was a, a consequence of the circumstances. Because not yeah. only, again, I don't think at that point the takeover news had come out but I believe like timeline wise it was rumbling in the background um, so I think the club kind of knew that there's a possibility that the people making the decision wouldn't be the ones to, to see the consequence of it and on top of that maybe they get to making the decision and like a month later the takeover goes through um, Yeah. so that's one aspect of course the World Cup break as well uh, you kind of know that there is a more permanent time to make that decision rather than waiting a whole season. You, you do have a nice natural break in the season for a new manager to come in. But I also felt that the the market for managers, there wasn't many proven Premier League managers that could come in that, A, weren't a drastic change in style. Like, for example, Leeds, Sam Allardyce at the end of the season, from where they started the season, their high-pressing football I think it kind of felt like you'd be bringing a specialist when the players didn't necessarily suit that. Yeah. Um, that was the only kind of thing that was sort of on the market. And those specialists 
without being rude to them, hadn't been specialists in, in some time. Like Sam Allardyce hasn't kept the team up, I think, now, like four years. Um, so the managerial market was fairly slim pickings. Um, yeah. So that would have impacted how they navigated the the appointment. So it very much did feel like Gary O'Neill was on a temporary basis uh, all the way for up to November. Towards November time, we were kind of thinking maybe he's done all right, that he'd be in, in the mix, and he was in the mix. But just the way he kind of dealt with his press conferences, it was a very strict one game at a time, nothing beyond, no questions beyond that. It was very much there in the here and now. Um, so you did kind of get the feeling that the club were looking at other things and that kind of developed, but there was just so many different factors that impacted that. I got to meet Gary O'Neill actually before the Brentford game. Um, and it was as part of uh, something that Steve Fletcher had sorted out for Algard, um, a close friend who sadly passed away uh, just after Christmas of cancer. But when I did meet, with Gary, um, he seemed very astute. He seemed very, very focused on the job in hand. Um, he was really looking at all these teams. And like, for example, Brentford, he was looking at, okay, if Brentford do this, we'll do this. And going into quite deep analysis with regards to that. Um, how much of that showed when you actually met him yourself? Um, not much, not because it's not there, but because he is extremely guarded, pretty much. Yeah. You'll open up about tactics post-match. Um, but yeah, if you, I appreciate the tactical side of the things. I obviously haven't got the level of understanding, um, like football coaches, but I have asked quite a few, uh, and especially before games, you're just not going to get the answer. You know, yeah. you're not going to get a, a clear cut answer. And it's the same with like team news, for example. He, he's very coy, very guarded about it because it's, it's literally every single advantage you can get, um, he will take. But he very much does does seem to be so studious, so focused on it. And there are very clearly is a tactical understanding. And it's nice when you can kind of prize a little bit out of him because yeah. it's clearly there. Um, and he, he's a pleasant enough guy. But you yeah. can very much tell that when he's at Cherries, in terms of down at the ground, there's stuff he'd much rather be doing, and that is preparing for the next game. He, he very much feels like the type of manager that if he doesn't go into a game feeling fully confident in his own preparation, then he won't be fully confident in getting results. So he very much stresses that he spends long long hours, not just in the office at Cherries, but also at home um, with like an iPad, watching games going through. Um, he doesn't. He doesn't bother going to watch upcoming opponents in the flesh because it's just wasted time traveling up to a stadium, sitting yeah. there. It's much more efficient to be sat at home or in the office watching the game. Um, this is that I think just highlights the level of detail he goes into and how efficient he wants to be. Um, but like I say, especially post match, it's very interesting. Post match, he will explain his tactical decisions a bit, a bit more. As you say, it very much he talks all the time about how the game will look and how he wants to set his players up so they know what the game will look like so they, they can then react to that during the game. Um, so yeah, and that from from people I speak to you know, around the club, that is very much the vibe they get. Is a very detailed and almost obsessive man who doesn't like to give much away because he wants to 
put all the margins he possibly can, all the winning margins in his favour. From that Wolves game all the way up to the Southampton defeat, every team in the Premier League had tasted defeat apart from ourselves. And that was really, from taking over from Scott Parker, that was the first really good run that Gary O'Neill went on. We'll discuss the second good run in a bit. But um, was you impressed with how he managed that team, especially that coming back from 2-0 down against Nottingham Forest to win 3-2? Yeah, I'm still fuming because at half-time, I turned around to my colleague and said, if Cherry's come back and win this, I'm going to put 50 quid on Gary O'Neill to get the job permanently. Um, and then in the chaos of the second half, I completely forgot. Um, <laughs> and I would have even I would have won that money even if he hadn't been appointed permanent manager because he the betting markets he, he managed 10 games into him, which counts as permanent. Yeah. But anyway, I'm letting that go. Um, but it was the game management there because he, he made a big call. He switched the formation there. I think that's also when we started to see there was a run of games where he would really... Um, start to match up, especially how Cherry's defended with how teams attacked. So against Forest, they started with a back four. Yeah, and obviously under Steve Cooper, Forest are very well known for playing with a back three. Um, and second half they matched that and it bore fruit. But I, I think the the first run, it very much felt like Cherry's had worked out how to be defensive and how to be defensively solid perhaps yeah. weren't clicking enough going forward. Uh, and then after that, there was a runoff where they, towards like the Everton games, where they were really good going forward, but they just perhaps lacked a little bit defensively the Leeds result, the Spurs result. Um, and it kind of felt like if they could find that balance between the two, of course, those defeats came after that initial run, but it kind of felt like they're still trying to find that balance. Uh, and arguably that clicked in April. But, um, but yeah, it, I think just to settle that team, especially after, like I say, 16 goals in three games, the one thing you really do need to do is shut up shop, at least improve yeah. defensive stability. And that then gives you the basis. And I think that gave him confidence as well, just to stay in games and get points. Um, for example, they went up to Newcastle. And Newcastle at the time, I think they were like the draw specialists of the Premier yes. League. Yeah. Um, but, but still, they were in very good form. And they went there with confidence because they kind of knew that if they can nick a goal, there's a good chance they can get something because they were quite capable of keeping teams out. Um, of course, that didn't last throughout the whole season, but I think just as a run of games, that undefeated streak, I think he just kind of settled nerves and then gave them confidence going forward. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Um, there was that run as well, and what we spe- you did mention about the Leeds and the Spurs games, um, where, of course, started with the Southampton match, then, of course, West Ham away, um, which was a little t- too dubious decisions, to be perfectly honest. That West Ham away match still grates on me a little bit. But then we come to the two games in question, which were the two games where I had a little bit of concern about Gary and how we st- kept kept those leads. Um, so, of course, we was 2-0 up against Spurs, ended up getting beat 3-2. And then Leeds, a week later, was 3-1 up, ended up getting beat 4-3. And I think it, we had about 20 minutes to go, didn't we? Um, but one thing you can say about Gary is that he's learned from those mistakes. Do you feel? Yeah, of course, there was the Arsenal result 
later yeah. on in the season, but that as a circumstance is completely different to yeah. both the Leeds and Spurs game. Um Cherry's under siege throughout the Arsenal game. But yeah, I think they're the first team in Premier League history to have two goal leads in consecutive games and lose both, um, which is not a pretty stat at all. And especially the Spurs game at the time, Spurs was still somewhat decent. Um, yeah. But the Leeds were especially um, a, a positional rival, for sure. Mm-hmm. So to, to lose points there and kind of galvanise them um, was disappointing. But the Spurs game... Especially, I think that was the first time we saw in O'Neill the set piece issue kind of rear its head. And yeah. of course, we conceded one or two uh, in games before, but that was the first time where it kind of felt like Spurs got a lot of corners and they looked a threat at most of them. Uh, yeah. Leeds, I think, they scored from a set piece as well and a penalty. Yeah. Um, so that was the, kind of the main, the start of the theme improper. Of course, they didn't mm. concede three set piece goals against Liverpool. Uh, under Parker, we're still that. That was kind of a theme, but as a young coach, you've got to learn. And I think the players also, again, it goes back to there perhaps not being tons of Premier League experience in there. Uh, it goes back to them growing confidence and learning from their mistakes and learning how to see out those results. Uh, yeah, as well as Gary and his coaching staff learning. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, of course, before the last two games before the World Cup were the two Everton games at home. And in all honesty, you know, they're two fantastic wins, the 4-1 in the Cup and then the 3-0 in the league. But in all honesty, Everton were the worst side I've seen down here all season. Um, but it led quite nicely into that World Cup period. And there was questions at that time about Marcelo Bielsa and there was other names floating around as well. Firstly, was Gary O'Neill, do you feel, the number one choice after that match or throughout that period? Because, of course, the takeover happened as well, didn't it, then? It's hard to say. Um, I know at that point, Freddie was having an input but he very much was not hands off, but he was like, I'm not the expert here. I'm I'm the money man. I will back if you go for the yeah. ambitious Bielsa one because Bielsa's wages would not be small. Um, and that, that's the one thing that, again, this season is we only ever heard really two concrete names on the shortlist, which was Bielsa and O'Neill. And apart from their really studious and detail-obsessed approaches, they could be further apart. You've got one veteran of the game who has so many people that look up to him um, playing a very, very um, idealistic style of football compared to Gary O'Neill, who at that point, young coach, 10, 11 games into his managerial career, who had had have to have been quite pragmatic in his approach. Um, couldn't really implement his ideals. Um, so th- that is a question mark. I think you do kind of have to wonder why the shortlist got narrowed down to those two extremely different candidates. Um, yeah. and at the time, I'm a massive fan of Bielsa, have been since his Bilbao side and Chile teams. Um, but even as obsessed as I am with his style of football, I, I just felt like it was a bad idea because it would, would have been the first time in his career that he would have taken over a team who both for the season. Of course, the World Cup breaks there. 
But not only is that a smaller period than a preseason, it's not a summer, it's not like the summer window where you can still sign players, you can bring new players yeah. in. Um, and Bielsa very much, I remember when he came to Leeds, instantly he binned off Union of Kane because he'd watched all his highlights and just decided he wasn't going to fit. He said, you can stay and try to change my mind, but it's not likely to happen. Um, yeah. So it would have been the same. He would have got into November, looked at players that he didn't like or didn't fit his tactics and would have been them off instantly without any way of replacing them for a month. Um, so it was very risky. And then obviously when Everton sacked Lampard and Bielsa was linked there again, his offer of taking over the youth teams and letting his staff coach Everton to the end of the season kind of highlights how even he probably doesn't like to take over and wouldn't have liked to take taken over midway through the season. So when it boils down to those two candidates, I think O'Neill was the right choice. However, yeah. I would kind of question why the shortlist only had those two at the top. There was mentions of Sean Dyche, but I think it was mainly in the fan base. But again, you know, when you look at what he's done at Everton and what he did at Burnley, again, that is a whole transition from the style of football that we like to play here. Yeah, and of course, Everton stayed up eventually. But I think it was very much a case of there being three worse teams than them, um, without being harsh. I know people are kind of talking about, and I've done an article this morning about how Cherry's is their lowest goal score tally this year. Uh, it, their lowest goal score tally in the Prem, and it's the first time in 26 seasons they've averaged less than a goal per league game. Um, it was male match inside in 95-96. Everton and Wolves both scored fewer goals um, than Cherries, who themselves didn't necessarily set the wall alight in that, that regard. Um, so I think even Deitch would have been a risk, but as you say, stylistically, he probably would have moulded and got enough and establish a style, but in the relegation battle, I don't, really don't think you have the time to put idealistic footballs or really knuckle down on how you want football to be played. Um, and then that puts pressure, because if you do try and attempt that, like Deitch has done, and it doesn't fully pay off, then you, you leave yourself open to pressure uh, and risk all the way through to the end of the season. So I think O'Neill's kind of pragmatism really has paid off. But again, I don't really recall internally Deitch being discussed too much. I know he came out and did that interview saying he'd be open to it, which is slightly amusing because I think most uh, most managers would be open to a Premier League job opportunity. Yeah. Um, but it, it did very much feel like it was a manager who didn't fit the club and a club who didn't fit the manager. So it was a suggestion from fans. I can understand why because again, it kind of leads into that survival specialist. But it never really felt like that was... A, a possibility. I've always been behind Gary O'Neill and um, probably, you know, that day when I actually met with Gary, you know, probably influenced that quite a bit as well. But we did go on that poor run after the World Cup and there was a lot of criticism, you know, some of it quite nasty, nasty. There was like the clown emojis. There was the P teacher comments. Um, I got a lot of flack myself for actually backing Gary O'Neill so much, but we was on that poor run. And there was times when, you know, I think that the club might have thought, right. Okay. Are we going in the right direction? Was there any point, from 
seeing within, seeing what Neil Blake and Richard Hughes were doing, was there any point when they maybe had second thoughts? Maybe, like, in extremely private conversations, but never to a level where there was any sort of, like, not even public doubt, but any question of what was happening. I know I, oh, I think it was February time. I, yeah, February time, I kind of came out and said, perhaps this isn't working just because there's so much fan pressure, but it was such an odd situation when you had, uh, of course, social media can be an echo chamber. Yeah. But even in the stands and just kind of the feeling around the grounds, well, at least in the main stand, you can tell there was discontent there. There's definitely discontent on social media. But internally, it, it was a case of people asking us, why aren't we asking the question? Because there's just no noise to back that up. It, it, almost to a point, if we'd asked the question, O'Neill would have kind of been like, would have understood why we were asking it. Uh, it did get to a point where I think he turned around and he did say he understands why he's being asked it because of the fan pressure, but he knew that he's fully backed. And I think that deserves credit because, of course, they could have got it wrong. Um, yeah. But I think, again, you look at Nottingham Forest, Steve Cooper seemed to be on the verge of the sack multiple times throughout the season. And in the end, he got to see it through and got the job done. I think sometimes we place a bit too much stock into the impact a manager can have on a season. Yeah. Um, but it very much felt that, especially around January time, when it was such a huge list of injuries. Um, and again, it wasn't the best run of fixtures either. Of course, the Crystal Palace game in particular was a real low point. And um, O'Neill afterwards came out very disappointed and very, not scathing in his criticism, but very open and honest about how the levels have been very low. But there was just a little, just I kept on seeing just glimmers and glimpses of enough to stay in the division, at least this year. Um, and at a boardroom level, I don't think it was even discussed. Um, I kind of said at the start of the month, the silence is almost deafening, especially in comparison, if you kind of imagine you have the club in one ear uh, and the fans to the other, just the complete difference in terms of what you're hearing from both. Um, I wouldn't say a disconnect, but there was just a pure backing from within the club, even when perhaps the fans felt very, very differently. I think the time where I showed probably the most concern was, of course, the Brentford game, um, which was televised on Sky. And it was poor. It was really, really disappointing. You know, I was gutted about the result. And I did wonder, and I thought more for Gary's own sanity, is this right? You know, because being in the Premier League, it is a cauldron. You can go on runs where you're winning, you know, a couple of games on the bounce. You can go on runs where you lose a couple of games. And it's all highlighted there in the press because it's the biggest league, arguably, in the world. Um, And I did think, well, is this really fair on a new manager? But he turned it round and it was late February. It showed again where he'd really learned from his mistakes and the team started to perform. You know, you take that Burnley performance and compare it against Wolves away. Well, the Wolves away game wasn't a classic again, but it was a pivotal point. Those two games against Wolves, I think, are so pivotal points in the season where he's turned things around. Yeah, I mean, um, roughly at the same time, it was the 
Forest at home game. I felt yeah. that could have been a turning point in the sense of dropping points so late on against a positional rival. That could have been, and it, it did, whilst the performance was a far improved from what we've seen in around that sort of time period, it was the result at a time when you really needed points that really could have turned things. Um, yeah. But yeah, that Wolves result, it was not good. It was not a good watch at all. The goal itself was a bit scrappy. Um, don't think if they don't score, I didn't really see Wolves scoring. I must admit, came away from that game fully understanding why Wolves have only scored 31 goals in the, the Premier this season, yeah. as it proved. Um, they really struggled to break down that low block that Cherry set up in. But defensively, it, it was a game where. Perhaps when you looked at Cherry's league position and kind of the mood around the club in the stands, that it was really a test of the character of the players. It was one of those where, like, you have lone players like Jack Stevens and, and January signings that don't have that attachment to the club, but they just felt to be unwavering commitment from the players. You not just to the club but also to O'Neill, um, especially at the time. I know constantly players kind of been asked about O'Neill and it was very much they wanted him to stay just as they wanted him to get the job when he was interim. So it did kind of feel like that Wolves game, not only did it kind of show that there was a resilience to, to Cherries that perhaps we hadn't seen so strongly, but also that there was a commitment to each other and the manager. And there was a, a real belief. Um, uh, I think that's the only thing you really can take away from that Wolves game was belief and three points. Gary did make a big call around that time as well. And I think he deserves so much credit for this. And he took the captaincy off Lloyd Kelly and gave it to Neto. Now, sometimes, you know, when this has happened in the past, it's really an indication that the player who's had the captaincy taken off them isn't really favoured or not really wanted by the manager. But never seemed that way with Gary O'Neill. It seemed like he was taking the whole pressure off Lloyd Kelly, who, let's be fair, against Burnley, it's probably one of the, well, the worst game he's ever had for this football club. But his confidence was an all-time low. But I think that pressure was taken off, wasn't it? Yeah, Lloyd Kelly's an interesting one because he was probably, I think if you think back to Scott Parker, the one player that comes to mind for me is Lloyd Kelly in terms of yeah. he was his captain. He was tasked with building moves from the back and he very much became a lightning rod of criticism, uh, especially last season. I remember the amount of times the ball would come back to him and he get whistles and jeers. And it, happened, it started happening again uh, around February, January time. But you also got to remember Lloyd, last time chose in the Prem, he didn't really play because he was struggling with injury. Yeah. He's been bounced back between two positions. Probably still don't know exactly what his best position is, uh, especially in the top flight. Um, and not only this season, he had multiple different injuries. He had an injury in pre-season. I think it was like an adductor muscle, I believe. Then he had like an ankle injury, I think. Um, and it's interesting because I think some head coaches have come in and they would see someone who is effectively the face of the previous manager and perhaps not want to undermine them, but want to put their own stamp on it. It never felt like it was O'Neill kind of arbitrarily going, oh, well, I'll take the captaincy off you and I'll chuck it to whoever. 
if that was the case, Smithy probably would have just taken a captaincy because he was vice. Um, it was quite amusing that Brighton game um, when Netty took the armband. Yeah. Lloyd wasn't playing, and everyone was kind of like, "Oh, well, Smithy is <laughs> starting." Um, yeah. But O'Neill hasn't been afraid to make those big decisions. Of course, that you probably get onto it later. But the whole Jordan Zamora situation, he very much had a say, and he very much had the final say on whether Jay Z would carry on playing after the whole contract situation kind of came out. Um, and with Neto, not only have you got an experienced goalkeeper who already was very loud, very vocal on the pitch, he speaks fairly good English, speaks fluent Portuguese, um, which doesn't actually help in the dressing room, I don't think. But he speaks good Spanish and Italian as well, which does help in the dressing room. He kind of is yeah. that unifying voice that really helps bridge the gaps. Because I think this is the first time, really, and of course we Cherries have had players in the past that have mainly only spoken Spanish or French or Italian, for example. Um, but it really feels like this is the first time you've got that issue of loads of new signings coming in that perhaps don't all speak the same language. It's the, you haven't really got much opportunity to, to help those players settle. So I think Neto, as that kind of focal point of the team, and he's clearly very well respected, that was a really great call. But as you say, it allowed Kelly to just focus on his game. Um, recover from injury he's not rushing back to be that kind of leading figure and he very much did as a leader um, but O'Neill I think briefly played with Kelly at Bristol City so there yeah. already was mutual respect and very much when you hear Gary speak about Lloydie he really rates him um, and that's clear how uh, even when he was still shaking off injury he was chucked in at left back when he hadn't really played as a left back under O'Neill um, to replace Jay Z against Liverpool, so it was it was a huge call. Um, but again, it highlights that O'Neill hasn't been afraid to make those huge calls. I think Lloyd Kelly's been fantastic. You know, ever since he's done that, I think you know. Let's be honest, his recent form's been good. His recent form has been really, really good. But going back to that period in time, you know, and after that Wolves game, we went on a little bit of a run. Um, and of course, one of the big moments of the season was that game against Arsenal, and that was followed up by the win against Liverpool, which it just felt we had that sequence of games again, Man City, Arsenal, Liverpool, and it was a time when we weren't particularly in the best place in the league. You know, it looked you know, like if we lost all three, that it was going to be quite difficult. Um, in fact, I believe the Liverpool game, we started the day bottom of the league, didn't we? They were definitely bottom of the league after the Arsenal... Well, after Arsenal's slash Saints beating Leicester. Um, yes. Great kickoff. But yeah, they, they went into the Liverpool game. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Picture the scene. All of your mates around, you've got your McNugget share boxes ready to go. Partner this with your team playing champagne football. Perfect. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. 
There's nothing quite like a McDelivery. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Not just like bottom of the league, but probably the lowest they would have felt after pushing the then league leaders all the way to literally the last kick of the game. Um, again, it's that resilience that has been shown throughout the season to go from 9-0 to being defensively solid enough just days later at home to Wolves under a rookie head coach to bounce back from Arsenal uh, and also with it in that period, they've been well beaten by City. And I, I do think yeah. that the home performance against City was vastly improved than the away performance. Yeah. Um, there was actually intent there. Um, but yeah, and not only do you go into that Liverpool game with Arsenal in the back of your mind, you've also got the Liverpool game fresh in the memory as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Anfield result. So, to kind of go into that and look, and again, Liverpool have been iffy this season. Yeah. How much of that result was down to Liverpool not being at their best, I can't really comment. But what we did see from Cherries was, again, that level of commitment, but also a self-belief, which I think sometimes when you're in a ready in March, like it wasn't like it was early on in the season. You've got two months left, you're quickly running out of games to sink to the bottom after they spent most of the season up until that point outside the relegation zone. Mm-hmm. All those kind of mental blows, I think, does really have an impact. So to kind of spark their season again. And as you say, it was a good run, but it was a, it was a weird run, wasn't it, where they were winning one, losing one, winning one. And I think during the championship season and this season, the players kept on speaking about not getting too high, not getting too low, but I think just imagine how mentally exhausting it is to go week in, lose one, win one, lose one, win one. You naturally have that highs and lows that you try to manage happening week after week. That can't be easy either. Um, but as O'Neill said at the time, if you, you win one, lose one from that point of the season, you, you probably stay up. And I think yeah. if you kind of look at the run they had in April and then the run they had in May, I think effectively they did win one, lose one. Um, just in a different order in terms of total wins over like an eight-game period. Um, but yeah, it not only did it kind of spark belief, it, it kind of showed that there was a mental strength that perhaps at that point, the season's gone by with other relegation threatened teams we haven't seen. Jaden Anthony, of course, around this time, signed a new contract. And you know why are we going with this? And I thought that at that time, because they are good friends, Jaden Anthony and Jordan Zamora, really, really good friends. I thought that Jordan Zamora was going to sign that contract. And then all that Udinese stuff come out. How advanced of that announcement being made by the Italian club was you aware that something was going on in the background? Um, I think it was about a few weeks because obviously it was the Liverpool game that JC got dropped. Yep. Um, and out of the squad. The club, you say with Jaden, Jaden and Jordan, they don't don't have the same agents, and they don't they've never had the same agents. Um, Jay Z's last agent, the one that he signed his last deal with the club, uh, at the same time as Jaden, he that agent was banned by the FA, uh, so he got a new agent, um, at a bigger agency. But by all accounts, and I can kind of see it. Obviously, when you're a small newspaper journalist, you kind of get ignored. I've made frequent attempts to um, contact Zamora's agent and heard nothing back. 
So it's no surprise then to me, or at least it's fairly logical to assume that when all the noise that around the club that they were hearing nothing from Jordan Zamora and his agent about a new deal, that that was true. And I've heard nothing to kind of uh, negate that. Even, like I say, you may not speak to a small local newspaper, but if your client's a Premier League footballer and you've been bombed out of the squad and they're saying you're not engaging with contract talks, most agents would get something out in the national media to kind of say that isn't the case, but we never yeah. heard that. It very much kind of felt like they were saying, yeah, whatever, that is the case. Um, there was a feeling that even like January time that something had been agreed with someone, even domestically. Of course, with free agents, you have um, domestic-based clubs in England can only really officially sign a pre-contract of a player two weeks after the last game of the season. Yeah. Uh, but international clubs, such as in AZ, can approach a player with six months remaining. Um, but it, it very much felt that it would be domestic, um, even if something perhaps underhanded had been taken place. Um, but uh, a lot of people, you, you make the comparison with Jane Anthony and John Zamora. The other comparison that was brought up was with Jefferson Lerma in terms of why was Jefferson Lerma still playing with Jordan Zamora or not? And I asked Gary O'Neill that question and he, he, that's been backed up by the fact that there's always been dialogue between Lerma's representatives, Lerma and the club in terms of yeah. what's been happening. With Zamora, it was just radio silence and that is, not only is that just odd, it's almost unheard of at a Premier League level in terms of contract talks. You, you at least make people aware of your plans or at least tell them that you're playing in the field looking for options. There was a contract offer on the table that had been improved, much the similar sort of level of Anthony that I understand that just wasn't negotiated. It wasn't responded to. It just sat there. Um, it got to the point where apparently Cherry's higher-ups had to go to Jordan Zamora in the flesh and say, there is a contract offer. The representative isn't answering. Um, that's not normally how contract talks occur. Yeah, um, but the the Unazi stuff kind of came out of nowhere, um, it, and Cherry's found out about it on social media. Um, so they quickly reacted and then decided that it wasn't just a case of Jordan can train with the first team but not play. They didn't want him around the first team picture at all. Um, yeah. And it's a, it's a sad way for it to end. Um, the other aspect is him going to Unazi means the club is entitled to less compensation as well. If you've gone to a domestic club, it would have gone to tribunal. They would have been in for considerably more money than they will receive due to FIFA Solidarity's payments. Um, so there's that aspect, but it wouldn't have been a large amount just because of when he joined Cherries in the first place as a 19-year-old uh, from Charlton. I think Charlton are set to get more money from this transfer um, than Cherries will, which is slightly crazy. But, yeah, it, it was one of those where after the Liverpool game, we knew something was up. Mm -hmm. But because there was not just a radio silence to the club between the Zamora's representatives, but also to the media, it was such a weird time because no one was really hearing anything. So the Udinese stuff kind of came out of nowhere and um, was quite surprising. And it was really weird how it all happened because, of course, Jordan Zamora retweeted or he put out a tweet a minute before he retweeted the Udinese announcement. Um, was there ever 
Gary O'Neill seemed to always be very, very supportive player. But do you feel that, you know, he felt let down because of what Zamora had done? Maybe, maybe not that, like the social media thing, but I think, I think how he handled the situation definitely because Bruno mm-hmm. Zamora, okay, is his first Premier League season. I wouldn't say he particularly set the world alight, um, especially defensively. It was a big part of how Charles went forward attacking, but certainly hasn't proven he's irreplaceable. Um, but I, th- I think there was a disappointment. And O'Neill, it, it kind of caused a flurry in, in Wales, of all places, um, because O'Neill was talking about how he wanted players to be with the group. Um, people yeah. thought that was talking about Keith Moore and Chris Meppham um, going away on international duty, but it wasn't. It was very, it was a question about Moore and Meppham, but it was very much a, an answer about Jordan Zamora. So I think there was just a, just a disappointment that after helping the team into the championship, after being given the opportunity of being a Premier League footballer by Cherries, that there wasn't that same level of commitment. And again, going back to Jefferson Lerma, even though the club kind of had a feeling that perhaps he was going to go at the end of the season, there was no question over his commitment, not just on the pitch, but in training. Just his general demeanour and approach was just so professional. It really kind of highlighted Zamora's lack of commitment. We were still, of course, at that point in a relegation battle. And... It seemed like, you know, I had the feeling once that was announced, I thought, right, okay, this is where it goes a little bit wobbly. You know, things could go wrong here. But Gary managed it well again to make sure it had zero effect across the whole team. Because shortly after that, we won that Fulham game. It was 1-0 down, 1-2-1. And then went on a run, of course, winning at Spurs from, you know... Being two all on oh, no, Dan Juma was always going to score there, wasn't he? But, um, you know, winning 3 2, it seemed like it had zero effect on the side that Zamora News, considering how close everybody was to Zamora, especially Jaden. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those where it's an awkward situation for a player, really. Um, you're going to get Jaden especially I, I've always kind of felt bad for both of them because a lot of journalists a lot of people they're, they're a package deal so one always gets asked about the other um, and we were very much were only speaking to Jaden Anthony um, in the latter half of the season so he was very much being asked about Jay-Z um, but I think again it just highlights the Belief, resilience, and almost laser focus Jerry's had on survival and on the next game. I think that kind of maxim has been instilled into them this season in terms of no matter what happened in the game previous, you just have to focus on the next game. Uh, that is cliche in football, but it's something that perhaps we, we lose focus of sometimes, like especially once Cherries were safe and they started to look next season you can very much tell that that same focus wasn't there so that definitely is a factor and they deserve credit for having that focus um so yeah i, I really don't think that the cherry squads are, are the type to let such not sad news but such big news especially big news to players that one of their own is being banished almost it's a harsh word um but even like for example you look at how they responded to when Scott Parker left. Scott Parker was relatively well-liked, even if you wouldn't have imagined so. 
because of his comments towards the end, he was well liked. Um, but the players, not unbothered, because of course it's always sad to see someone lose their job. But again, just focus on the job at hand. I very much have been professional this season. Let's just quickly touch upon the players as well that come in. And of course, Dongo Atara um, coming from Lorient. Um, it was always quite a controversial deal because considering Bill Foley has got a stake in Lorient, but also Hamid Traore from Sassuolo and Matthias Vigna um, as well from Roma. But the reason why I mentioned those two latter ones is because of the clauses put in the contracts. Of course, Hamid Traore has actually signed now from Sassuolo. And I believe, if I'm right in thinking, that there's a similar sort of agreement with Vigna. There's, there's an option for Vigna. I'm still trying to find out what's happening there. Uh, <laughs> funny enough, I tried to speak to Matty um, yeah. after the Everton game. Uh, it's a very funny story. Introduced myself in Spanish. He said, he turned around and said he didn't speak English. I then said, well, you can do it in Spanish. Uh, he then replied to me in Italian and then said to me in Italian, I don't speak very good Spanish, um, despite him being a native speaker. So fair play to Matty. Um, it's, uh, it was interesting to see what, what would happen if I said yes, um, how many languages he would have pulled out to keep me at bay. Um, it's an interesting one because I think Matty Vigna is very similar to Jordan Zamora in the sense that they very much are much better going forward than they are defensively. Um, yeah. However, I don't think I don't think that um, it's necessarily a bad thing, especially with how Cherries are kind of setting up and leaning more towards um, Matty Vigna's versatility. I think can also help. Um, and also, you imagine if he's been here six months, I think that kind of head start to next season could be a factor in why you want to bring him back. He genuinely has impressed. It seems like he's got the opportunity to score a great goal every game. Um, he's yeah. had a few rolled out, had a great strike late on against Everton. Um, interesting to see how that one pays out because I know Roma, their financial situation isn't great. They might be forced into making a sale, um, but they also would like to replace him. I know that Matty Vigna deal was kind of dependent on Roma getting in Diego Loriente on loan from Leeds. Um, mm. How they approach that and kind of might be a domino effect that one goes. But if there's an option in the clause, an optional clause in the deal already, um, Cherries have that kind of advantage going into the window if they do want to make that permanent. Um, but it does kind of seem like O'Neill isn't opposed to using Vigna as a right-back. So with Jack Stacey going, I can see him signing Vigna just so he has depth on either side. Uh, it be interesting to see how that one pans out. Um but yeah, and how I Troy won, um, I, I think that was more financial fair play. Um, yeah. That just to, to push the cost to next season. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, the January signings on a whole have looked good, but I don't think even right now we've seen too much, like enough of Matty Vigna to say one way or the other whether he is the answer, for example, or, or will be worth the money. Uh, and the same with Harman Troy, I know injuries kind of. Uh, blighted him slightly. Um, and Dango Otaro has had good moments, has other moments looked not poor. I think there's obviously a language barrier there. Tactically, I think he perhaps isn't, that isn't his game. He, he very much is a player that needs that freedom. Um, and when he is allowed to just kind of 
hover uh, and find his own space. He does very well. When he kind of has a trap back, he's shown some proficiency at it, but uh, that Fulham game in particular, I remember just watching O'Neill go mental, uh, trying to get Watara to trap back. And then the amount of space Fulham kept on finding down that left-hand flank was was ridiculous. But Watara came off that and the team looked a lot better. But there has, of course, on the flip side, been games where Watara's come on and Chosey looked a lot better. Uh, he very much is a situational player, I think. Uh, but I think there's definitely a lot of room for growth with him. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how that Lorient um, relationship kind of develops. Of course, a lot of ill feeling from their fans. Yes. Slowly, but to Bournemouth as well. It's a, it's a very interesting dynamic uh, and how Black Knight Football Entertainment's stake in Lorient grows. That's another one. And also to see if they're follow through with plans of buying another club elsewhere, how that all adds up. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the January, January transfer window as a whole was productive, um, yeah. but I don't think we've seen the best of Hamad and Dongo, and that's exciting. It's not a slight on those players. I think with a, a full pre-season for them to settle, they, they will look really good. There is rumours or has been rumours going around with regards to us looking at more Lorient players. And one name that does pop up every now and again is Enzo Lafie. Um, do you think that there is substance in that? I, I think it's a difficult kind of... Those rumours will be more common now just because <laughs> you've got a, a plausible link always. Um Juries will have access to kind of the stats, more in-depth stats and more in-depth reports. So very much not saying that they're a safer bet, but you're more well-informed about a player when you, you yeah. bring them in from a sister club like that. Um, I can very much see Lerman's replacement in some way being a bit more of a, a ball-playing midfielder rather than that competitive, just, just kind of how Cherries are looking to move towards a more possession-based system or controlling yeah. the ball in midfield a lot more. Uh so and I think Luffy fits that a bit more because he's kind of like Rothwell in the sense that he's very comfortable on the ball and bringing the ball forward, dribbling, um, but probably a bit more attack-minded than, than, than Rothwell. Um, but to be fair, that being said, one thing that both Rothwell and O'Neill have talked a lot about is how they've added defensive responsibilities to his game. That's the one yeah. side of his game, the improvement. And we've seen that throughout the course of the season. So I don't necessarily think players like Luffy they may have a profile and they may be doing a certain role at different clubs, but they may come to Cherries to do a different role and to kind of be moulded in, into a more versatile player. Mm-hmm. I think the other interest is, I think that, that fan link and the the feeling of Lorient fans will be a factor in future transfers just because whilst Black Knight do have the option and are looking to probably move towards a, a total buyout of Lorient, there still is a uh, a local man, local businessman in charge of the club who yeah. very much understands the feeling of the fans. So I don't, I don't think it's necessarily going to be a fire sale each year, but I think Cherries will have a much more well-rounded picture of players from L'Oreal. And if they fit and a fee can be agreed and they have, they have more advantages in signing players from L'Oreal, but I don't think they're necessarily concrete links. It's just those players will always be on Cherries' radars from now on. Going back to, of course, the results um, after, and it, there was three games as well that was going to define our season. 
and that was West Ham at home, Southampton away, and then, of course, Leeds at home. We lost that West Ham game, but, of course, won the following two, which secured survival in the Premier League. The West Ham game especially um, was a bit disappointing, but the Southampton game a bit cagey, but the players seemed to come out of their shells against Leeds. What did you make of all that? Because it seemed like Gary had got into their heads, right, okay, those are the two games that we need to really focus on. That Southampton one, it was cagey, it was concerning, but it seemed like they were always going to get that job done. Yeah, the West Ham game, again, feels like I'm stuck record, but set pieces with their ugly head once more. Uh, and that, I know, it's kind of been a stick to beat Cherries over the season, but it's a very fair stick to beat them with. Um, and that really, I think that was probably some of the worst goals they've conceded this season for set pieces, yeah. especially that first one, Antonio, just had complete freedom. Um, ridiculous how much space he had. Um, but also, I think, especially that West Ham result, where it kind of came from the context of the Fulham Spurs and Leicester wins, it very much would have been quite easy to take that and kind of go back into their shells, like you say, and kind of have their confidence knocked, especially going to that Southampton game, because that Southampton atmosphere was really weird. It was not a half-empty stadium, but there's certainly quite a few seats, you could see. Um, And there was just malcontent. And Southampton, it's been such an odd season because arguably in another Premier League season, that Southampton team would have been relegated some time before April or very much yeah. would have felt 100% down. But they went into that game and they kept on going into the games for a few games after that, still technically in with a shout of staying up. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was that sort of energy of you never know, and especially Southampton's record against Cherries is pretty good. You look back to the first game, that's the, between the two teams of the season under Ralph Hassan-Hootel, Southampton were in poor form. Cherries were in decent form. Southampton got a goal and it looked like they weren't. Cherries never really looked like scoring. Um, And as you say, extremely cagey game. Um, Again, Matty Vigna always scored an absolute cracker. Um, Just have it ruled out. It did take a, not quite a moment of magic, but it very much felt like if one team was going to produce something, it was going to be Bournemouth. After he scored... Yes, you say it felt like they were always going to get the job done, but it did always feel like Southampton had just something that something was just going to click for them, and very almost did, just a matter of inches. But how they dealt with that situation, and especially when you come back from that disappointment of playing on the Sunday, losing comprehensively to a team in and amongst it down the bottom, to yeah. then going down the road to a game that you know your fans care about against a team that is just a discontent, it's a weird atmosphere to play in, to get that result and get over the line, at that stage of the season is all that matters. And it kind of felt, I know O'Neill kept on saying 36 points wouldn't have been enough. Um, but it kind of felt like there was less pressure after those running results that lifted them up, that they can go into that Leeds game against a Leeds side that very much, I think, if you score the first goal against Leeds under Javi Garcia and then um, Sam Allardyce as well, if you score the first goal against Leeds, they will just mentally crumble. And that proved to be the case. Like I remember looking across from the press box to to the Leeds fans going over to the Leeds players going over as their own fans. They looked shell shocked. They looked like they hadn't had a clue what happened. 
Um, and I think that's probably up there with the best performances we've seen from Terriers this season. Even though Patrick Bamford's goal, again, that was poor. He had so much space and time to, to head home. Um, but overall, just, just as a whole, it very much felt like there's one team that knew survival was a possibility and were confident in going and claiming it against a side that looked in free fall, especially after the first goal scored. One man that had an absolute blinder that day was Jefferson Lerma. And I'm absolutely devastated that he's leaving the club. Um, you know, he's been he's been no nonsense. He had the chance, to be fair, when we were relegated to the championship to leave this football club, but he chose to help us fight our way back into the Premier League. Um I'm guessing that it was going on for some time beforehand, like you mentioned with regards to the contract situation. Um, it was going on for some time. I thought he was always going to go to Spain. But there's, there's two parts to this question, really. One that's more recent, second part, about Crystal Palace. Um, it looks like Crystal Palace is his destination. They're quite a similar club to us in terms of size, yeah, maybe a bit bigger, being in the Premier League a bit longer. But it's not the massive step up that you'd expect. And there was bigger Spanish clubs that were being mentioned, weren't there? Yeah, but um, speaking to sources, there was never any concrete interest. There was interest, but the money that is in the Premier League just far outweighs the money available in Spain and in other continental teams especially sort of mid-table. Uh, I think Jefferson's in that stage of his career, 28, 29 in October, that you've arguably got one big contract left. Yeah. Uh, and I do understand that Cherry's at least matched the, the, the length of contract. Um, that wasn't an issue. But also, I, I think it just it comes back to not only does like London have a stronger Spanish-speaking community, much easier flights, um, for example, but Sometimes footballers just need a new challenge, and even if that challenge seems similar, just a change in scenery, a change in kind of atmosphere, and also just approach can help you grow as a footballer and also as a, as a person. I think Jefferson very much is that type of person who wants to keep on improving. Um, he's definitely improved. He's like, for example, he's really calmed down his disciplinary records. Well, I say he's really calmed down, he gets less bookings. Um, perhaps hasn't calmed down with some of his antics, but he very much is a more controlled player in that aspect of the mm. game. Um, but, but, but also, he's had that kind of Premier League relegation battle for some time. I know people kind of point towards Crystal Palace in a similar situation, but I do kind of think they're further along in terms of being that established. You look at the talents they have, of course, Zaha may leave, but Etza and Elise are fantastic players uh, who... Yeah. There's no real concrete links for them to leave as well. And then Decore in the midfield, Decore, Lerma midfield of Etze, Elise, potentially Zaha in front of them. is a very, very good outfit in the Premier League. Um, just a striker away, really, I think, from perhaps matching Brentford and Brighton, especially in terms of a strong starting eleven. perhaps haven't got the same depth as Brighton, for example. But I think, yeah, just sometimes a change of scenery and a new challenge it's just enticing. Uh, sometimes, as you say, I, I'm kind of I'm working on a piece discussing this. 
it was a difficult time when the church got relegated with COVID. Yeah. That did kind of impact the transfer market and who could leave. But, but still, at that point, when you've got a Premier League proven midfielder who has been one of Cherry's first names on the team sheets and the five managers now, when a club gets relegated, there is always the possibility. And when a club that gets relegated doesn't go back up after the first season, that second season, and the financial pressures strengthen again, there is the opportunity and the possibility that he might have to leave. But even though there perhaps wasn't concrete interest, I think that stems from the fact that he never really pushed for a move. He was very happy to help Cherries get back to where they were. It very much was was a case of perhaps if a club did come through with a concrete offer, it'd be a different story. But it wasn't a case of him turning around going, "Oh, actually, I'm the club's record signing, twenty five million pounds. I've been to World Cup, I'm a Colombian international. Um, I should be playing week in week out in the top flight." It was very much a case of he had a contract, he was willing to honour it. Um, and like I said, I think there was interest in Turkey. Um, Turkish clubs and their finances are a law upon themselves in terms of actually how much money they have and how much they can pay. So how how strong those links and how close that was to a move. But it very much never felt, uh, even this season, even with his contract expiring, it never felt like Lerma's commitment was elsewhere. His focus and his, his efforts were solely focused on Bournemouth. Um, and sometimes that can be rare, uh, especially, like, like, imagine what is your second, second season in England. You still... Yeah. Not speaking the language fluently, there's a global pandemic happening. And you've just been relegated. And you, you, you're thousands of miles away from home. It must be an incredibly difficult place to be in. Um, it was a difficult time for everyone, of course. But as a circumstance, it would have been quite easy to just kind of say, "I'll sack this off now." Like, I've tried. They've gone down. It's a good time to move on. Yes, okay. The financial market caused by COVID perhaps didn't facilitate a move, but he very much could have pushed for one if he really wanted to. Uh, and I think that deserves credit. The rumours that I heard with regards to Spain were of uh, Villarreal and also Sevilla um, being in for Lerma. I don't know how much truth was in that. Probably not very many much. You know, you see rumours going around the internet all the time. But one big question, actually, because there is a cloud over Spanish football at the moment. Of course, what happened to Vinicius Jr. in that recent match between Real Madrid and Valencia? Um, and the disgusting scenes from the Valencia fans. Do you think if there was concrete interest in Lerma, that that might have swayed his mind? Or do you think it will sway a lot of players' minds about going to the Spanish league? I think everyone's situation is different. Of course, Lerma as a black footballer who's played in La Liga, is yeah. probably aware of kind of the culture of Spanish football, uh, especially. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it would have swayed him in particular, A, because I don't think there was much concrete offer, especially in terms of, I think there might be like preliminary talks uh, where wages, like potential wages would, would have been discussed and that would have been shot down quite quickly because it just was not matching what was an offer in England. But yeah, I, I think it, it would be case by case Scenarios um, like Vinicius Junior. He's not only playing in a foreign country at quite a young age, um, but he's a star. He's a focal point. And his his treatment, of course, there's that racism, but it feels very very pointed to him as a person as well. Uh, it is a case of I don't think 
was that also has been quite a few examples of racism. Further players as well in Spain, I, I very much think it is racism being used to get under the skin of a, a single person. Um, it's quite interesting that the kind of Spanish attitude to it is because he's antagonizing people, it's okay to be racist, which is such a absolutely broken chain of thinking. Um, but that that is kind of their thinking. It is yeah. we're abusing him because he deserves it, not because of the colour of his skin is kind of the excuse um by some, which again is deplorable. But I, I think quite a few players that are worried about it would kind of see that as some of them will see that as one of the, the faces of La Liga, one of the stars of one of the biggest clubs in the world is not immune to it. But I think other players will kind of realise because he's on that pedestal, he's getting the focus. But yeah, I, I wouldn't really say that that was an impact in, in Lerma's thinking. And it probably will impact other people's thinking. But I think footballers, they want to play at the highest level they can. Uh, yeah. They understand most most countries, it seems like there's always going to be one or two, isn't there? I think even over here, commentary, commentary lad that missed the penalty, um, he's had racial abuse. So I think unfortunately for, for players, um, that's just a fact of being a footballer. You're going to get abuse and depending on the colour of your skin, there's a strong chance you're going to get racist abuse, um, which is extremely sad. Yeah, completely agree, mate. Completely agree. Um of course, after that Leeds game, our season kind of went out with a little bit of a whimper. Um, we had the Palace game and, you know, we didn't... During that match, Elise and Eze, two players that you mentioned there, um, kind of run that game. Um, the Man United game, I think we played quite well in. And I think we played all right at Everton as well. I think just... 40,000 scousers going, getting behind mm. their side. You know, it was always going to be difficult. But do you feel that the players did take their foot off the gas or do you feel that it was just a little bit of a run of fixtures that maybe that Gary wanted to experiment in? I very much get the vibe of experimenting. You know, the Chelsea game, they were very unlucky yep. to lose that, I feel. Um, just, just weren't clinical enough. And then Chelsea, as soon as school the second hit them on the break, it's called the third. Um, and of course, people will say that that's not the Chelsea side of old. Um, uh, but they still have some good players, especially on a counter-attacking basis, they can hurt you. Um, but it was very disappointing. Because I think that was Lampard's first win, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Um, so, but again, I have seen elements, apart from Crystal Palace, I saw nothing of any real note there. Um, just like the referees did with the Lerner-Anderson incident. But nothing to take away from that. But the Man United game and the Everton game, the Everton game felt like a game plan. That specific game, I felt like they were really trying to take the sting out of it, trying to keep the ball really not quite in down the Everton fans because that didn't work. Smithy said yeah. that to me afterwards. He said it was one of the best atmospheres that he's ever played in. But how they tried to navigate and negotiate that, it would have been a good approach, say, if Cherries also had something riding on that. Yeah, kind of control the game as much as they can in those circumstances. But the United game was similar. They tried to keep the ball a lot more. I think they've kind of realised it's, it's a case of not necessarily having possession for possession's sake. Um, also, Neil about it in the sense that I think only like three goals this season they've mm-hmm. have come from a sequence of more than 10 passes. They're very direct and counter-attacking side. And O'Neill did point out that unless you're kind of Manchester City-Arsenal, that's quite rare. Anyway, to have long sweeping sequences, 
but it does really kind of feel like there is a focus on not only keeping the ball, have more control of games, but also a focus to have the ball to kind of unlock low blocks. That's something Cherries have really struggled this season with the main yeah. source of goals have been hitting teams in transition when defences aren't set. As soon as a team kind of gets that low block, uh, most teams do struggle. So it was why it's a very frequent and common defensive tactic, the low block. But in particular, they really struggle to kind of bring teams out of that shape once they settle into it. So I think that focus, uh, and when you kind of know you're safe already, apart from the Crystal Palace game, the Crystal Palace game, just how annoyed O'Neill was afterwards, kind of explained that, that that very much wasn't them being on the beach. It was just a poor day from both Crystal Palace games this season have been quite poor, um, extremely poor. Probably, i say, two worst performances of the season, or at least up there. Um, but I, I was seeing enough from especially the Manchester United game and the Chelsea game and a bit of the Everton game to kind of see that there was a focus on next season. And that's what O'Neill's messaging has been in press conferences has been. This is an opportunity. And he was put to him that the higher you finish up the league table, the more money you get. But he's kind of saying, if you can get things right this season, you can guarantee yourself 100 million, 200 million by staying in the Premier League for a third season. So, and I think it's the first time he's had the opportunity to think long-term. Like I said, he's been game by game for so long, even after he became permanent basis, there's still that game by game kind of just get through the day to survive. But now that they have survived, there is that kind of scope to look forward to his first preseason to kind of get his ideals and kind of get his image of football implanted on the team. What do you think that Gary and Bill Foley need to do during the summer? Because um, it's going to be a summer of change. Of course, Lerma's gone. There is rumours with other players as well um, going around. Again, rumours are rumours and there's nothing concrete until they happen. But what do you think is going to be the main focal points for Gary and Bill? And of course, Neil Blake and Richard Hughes, again, two men that come under a lot of stick. But you know, I've done a fantastic job at the football club. It's an interesting one because I think Cherries, not only are they hampered by the stadium situation and the training ground situation in terms yeah. of like revenue incoming, um, they don't have as much freedom as other Premier League clubs. I think Premier League footballers and all footballers, they care about the facilities that they're working in. Yeah. There's only so much that you can increase your wages to kind of give you an advantage over a club that have better facilities. But that that's the main focus, of course, trying to figure out the stadium situation and then the training ground, which is a good progress is being made. But in terms of the playing squad, it'll be interesting because I, I did think that January's business, the signings that are brought in, Semenyo, Matara, Traore, they were very, very good footballers. Uh, Matty Vigno as well for that transitional style of play. Yeah. Um, Whereas, for example, Zabani, I think we're kind of starting to see very similar to Marcus Sinesi, where he's very comfortable on the ball. And from what speaking to O'Neill, it just kind of feel like they, they want to move towards that more possession base, but they want to use the, the, the back three to build moves. So Sinesi, his range of passing is really impressive. But also yeah. Sinesi and Zabani, they like to carry the ball forward. So I think whilst you, you look at 71 goals conceded, um, I think it's less than six teams in the Premier League 20-team era that have stayed up conceding more than 70 goals. Yeah. Um, only, only one other team apart from Cherries this year have stayed up conceding 70-plus goals and scoring less than a goal per game, which was Wigan in 2010. Um, so 
there's clear things that have to improve, set pieces especially. But I think people will look at the defence and think that's the thing that really has to improve first. But I think there will be faith for the most part, especially in the back centre-backs. I think there will have to be full-backs brought in just to make up depth issues. Yeah. Um, even if Lloydie is first-choice left-back, you, you do really need a backup. At the moment, it's just Ben Greenwood who signed the contract but probably isn't Premier League ready at the moment. And then at right-back, you've got Adam Smith, who's dependable as they come. But again, question marks over Ryan Frederick's fitness. So you definitely need a full-back. That would be my, my priority. Um, again, not like I say, not necessarily a level replacement, but definitely another body in the centre of midfield. Um, especially how, again, I, I think that cent- central midfield signing will indicate how Cherries are going to line up next season in terms of are they really going to commit to this new style of play that they're working towards, or might they still try and go for that transitional rope dope style of play that's kind of been dubbed? Uh, and I know there's a lot of talk about an out and out goal scorer, um, out and out goal scorers, they are very expensive. Yeah. I think Dom has done enough to kind of, I know around that time when the side weren't playing very well, there's a lot of discussion about whether he is a Premier League footballer. But I think, especially in April, he kind of proved that when he's confident and when the team's playing well, that not only can he score goals, he can also set um, teammates up. Sorry, I don't know why. I completely forgot what the word there was. Uh, yeah. He can also set teammates up. And I think he very much suits a possession of style of play again it's a discussion we've had about Solanke for ages um, it is would he play better with another striker um, not necessarily I think Kiefer Moore's in that unlucky situation where he's turning into that, that classic plan B off the bench yeah. rather you something different you can change but I don't think he can be that supplementary striker to Solanke um, the amount of times earlier on in the season we saw Kiefer Moore on the wing crossing balls into where Kiefer Moore should be was quite frustrating mm-hmm. um, but to find a striker that perhaps would have to play second fiddle that is also an improvement that's an incredibly difficult find yeah. in this market uh, I know already we're seeing links back to Nicholas Jackson I really doubt that will come through now just because they've gone and signed other players in that position, the wide roles, those kind of quick attackers that can play on, on the wing. Cherry's got loads of those at the moment. Um, it's definitely going to be interesting some of the outgoings and how they kind of deal with that um, because that's the one criticism I did have. It kind of felt like going into the season and even to January, that was very much just a mishmash of styles. You had a load of players, but I don't think you could pull 11 players and say, they are suited to playing this formation. It very much felt like there's always a, a square peg in a round hole. Um, yeah. So I think this, this summer could be the opportunity to start streamlining it to make sure that you've got a squad. Not only have you got a starting level that can play a style of football, you've got depth where if you need to swap players out, mm-hmm. you can. But also you've got options where if that style isn't working, you can you can tweak things. So that's an incredibly difficult thing to do. It's not like I think sometimes fans and press can just kind of go, here's the shopping list is what you need. But to kind of balance that all, that's going to be a big ask, but it's going to be interesting because I think this will be another statement of intent from Foley. He's talked about how Cherries weren't going to get radiated. And he's already spoken about Europe this summer and how Cherries negotiated. I think it will be a marker. In January, they spent a decent amount, but when you kind of compare their overall spending or the season as a whole, like considering the summer spending, it wasn't ex- too excessive, um, especially compared to the gaps they had to fill with all the loan players that left 
um, in the summer. But it'd be interesting to kind of see how they approach this window, if they are going to go gung-ho again, or if it's going to be more concentrated, not necessarily bigger names, but bigger financial contributions in terms of the players they bring in, if they're going to go big on one or two, or if they're going to try and bulk out the squad. I know quite a few spaces are freed up already in terms of registration next season. So that's going to be very interesting to see. So, of course, the final real question is, of course, there is going to be quite a lot of changes around the football club. And um, hopefully, fingers crossed, the stadium talks will start to pick up. Um, I'd love to see a renovated Dean Court where it's made a bit bigger, but it seems like the owners aren't going to go down that route. But for the time being, there is these ticket price increases um, that... Jim Frivola has announced. With regards to that, there has been a lot of grumbles, but this is something that is part and parcel. We might we've not had uh, increases for the last six years, and I think fans have probably got to get used to it, um, and also supporting the whole club. Yeah, I think it might even be eight seasons now since the last one. I think. Um... But it's, it's, it's a difficult one because, of course, you've got the cost cost of living. Um, yeah. I think if it's a one-off, um, it's not every season. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, can't talk about that. But if it sets a precedent of allowing that to increase, I think I think the main grumble. I think most fans aren't perhaps annoyed, or they're at least understanding that may not be happy with it. But they're at least understanding of why there's an increase in prices. I think that main sort of grumble is. Uh, I know concessions have been hit harder, especially yeah. at the time. Um, for what Cherry's and Jim Ferrero's kind of s- said is more parity um, to make yes. it fairer, which I-, I can see both arguments. I-, I-, I also understand the main grumble about the women's tickets and how that's been approached. I do think that that could have been. And I know kind of Jim's t- turned around and said that they wanted to be transparent about, about it, mm-hmm. but. I'm very much of the opinion, once you've got that money from season tickets, the club can spend it on what they like at the club. Yes. Yeah. Um, they could have just simply said that the ticket, like increased ticket, season ticket prices will go towards the women's team. Um, but it's also, we haven't really heard anything concrete about the women's team. That's the other concern I have. They're still an amateur outfit. I don't think necessarily there is direct plans for them to go semi-professional next season. That's mm-hmm. the next step. Um, it does feel slightly weird to be charging fans to go watch the women's team that aren't paid themselves. Um, yeah. So I think fans would also be a bit happier if they knew what the improvements of the women's team what that entails. Um, yeah. Because at the moment, there isn't really a roadmap to kind of see what what the plan is there. Because it's not easy. It's not easy to go from amateur football to semi-professional football to professional football with a women's team. Um, and of course, kind of like the bottleneck issue they have with promotion in terms of going up the leagues, you can't skyrocket up them anymore. Um, they're streamlining that. But I think there needs to be a more concrete plan for what's actually happening with the women's football rather than kind of just saying that they will be improving it. We've been hearing that yeah. since we've come in now. Um, so it'd be interesting to see what that money is being spent on. I think fans will be a lot more understanding of that. Um, because the women's team do deserve support, they do deserve financial support, and that it's good that the club is promising that. It'd just be nice to see what that actually entails. Yeah, 
most definitely most definitely well thank you so much jack for coming on hopefully fingers crossed you know summer i guess it never stops to does it for you you'll be covering all the transfer talk and um for the daily echo and um getting ready for next season yeah um, we've got speedway to tide us over but yeah i always think the summer is longer than it is and it very much isn't um Transfer window, I think, opens in just under two weeks. Um, yeah. But there'll be plenty of rumours leading up to that. Plenty of news to keep us on our toes. And then we're back into pre-season. I think Cherry's return in a month's time for pre-season. They fly out to wherever they're flying out the week after. Um, so no time at all, really. But I wouldn't have it any other way. Exactly, mate. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, you're always welcome on this channel and no doubt we'll catch up at some point uh, during the rest of the summer that we've got and uh, probably next season as well. No, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you everybody for joining us. Please remember to hit the like, the subscribe and the bell button below to be alerted to any new shows we do here on Up the Cherries in All Departments. Please also do check out our recent interviews. I know the game is gone, but we did do an interview with Ocean Colour Scenes, Damon Minchella. We also had Kendall Rowan talking about Newcastle and Eddie Howe and of course Centre of Attention, Jason Tyndall. Plus, there's loads, loads more. We've had interviews with Harry Redknapp on a number of occasions now, Steve Cook, Steve Fletcher, and many, many others as well. So do check that out. Hit that like, hit that subscribe button, and you'll be alerted to everything we do. But until the next show, up the cherries, and we'll see you then. Thank you for joining us. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered. By fans.